the acting was incredible. It sort of changed the Western world's view of acting. And with that change in acting comes a change in directing. You're no longer just telling them where to stand, you're trying to find out how they feel. This is the Community of Theatre podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the community theatres, the local theatres, the amateur, educational, and outreach theatres, the not-for-profit theatres of all kinds that stage over 25,000 productions across America every year. Today, I'd like to welcome back Doug DiGirolamo. Got that name right the first time. I edited it out last time, so listeners aren't aware how how long that took me. Um, but after that first episode, and I'm calling it the first one, it was the first we recorded, even though it was not the first broadcast. But after that, you suggested an episode on the history of directors and told me something I was completely oblivious to, which is there was a time in theater history before the role of director existed. That's true. Yes. So, so how far back are we talking back to the greeks you can go all the way back to the greeks Mm -hmm. uh you know the greeks always had you know the greek chorus everybody everybody knows it a big group of people standing in front of you practically screaming a story at you Uh and everybody always gives thespis the credit for stepping out of the chorus and starting a dialogue um but he he shouldn't really get all the credit if you think about it, because to have a dialogue, you need two people, right? Sure. So somebody else had to step out with him. Mm-hmm. So I like to think of Thespis as more like the first director, the first person who said, let's do something different. Follow my lead. Okay. So I like to think of Thespis as more like the first director versus the first standalone actor. <laughs> okay. I So I think even knowing who Thespis is, certainly mm-hmm. I think most people know the name Thespian, the, the word Thespian, which surely derives from Thespis. From but, Thespis. but I think just general high school education in America, most of us have been exposed to Oedipus and that's about yep. it. That's really the only Greek that we get. And, okay. uh, you know, we know so much about Oedipus because of Aristotle, mm-hmm. who was a theater critic at the time. He, ah. he would go out and he would give these, these speeches on what is drama, what, is, what play is good, what play is bad. Mm-hmm. And Oedipus was the first show that he picked and said, this this is what theater should be. This is what live performance should be. And he, you know, he goes through in his poetics mm-hmm. what live theater should be and why Oedipus fits into it so perfectly. Okay. There's a little theater one-on-one for Yeah, you. yeah. Well, that's where he's for today. I love the history of it. It's, it's yeah. just fantastic. All right. So where does it go from there? So I've... I was actually thinking about this in mm-hmm. the context of another episode I, I hope to do, and that's that when I think about the history of theater, I have this sense, if I was to draw out a timeline and plot all the shows I know of, yeah. it would be real dense over the past 50 years, it trickle back to a few dots in the late 1900s, and there'd be nothing until Shakespeare, there's a whole bunch then, then nothing until the Greeks, and it's like Oedipus, and that's it. So sure. why what were people doing during yes. all this time, yes. right? Well, they were they were storytellers. You've heard of Commedia dell'arte. Mm-hmm. That's you know sort of like the beginning of clowning. These shows, a lot of times, uh, towns themselves, like in France and Greece and you know Germany, all over Europe, they would actually have budgets in their city planning to put on what they call pageants, not necessarily plays. Well, what time period are we talking about here? So yeah, we're probably starting in the medieval time. Because okay. we know, you know, the Romans and the Greeks, they mm-hmm. had the big amphitheaters and you could sit on the side of a mountain and hear these stories. Well, what yeah. happens after the fall of Rome? Yeah, People still want to hear stories, 
But now these stories are changing. They're not so much about these great battles and, you know, Roman victors. They're about Christianity. Mm-hmm. They're telling the stories of God. And that's where these gigantic pageants are coming from in the Middle Ages. These small uh. towns to bigger cities, they're creating these large cast, 300 people plus stories uh, from the Bible, from from history of the things that they know. This is sort of where you, you get what, what we would consider a modern day director from this. Because when you have 300 people to choreograph, <laughs> you need somebody in charge of the bullhorn, right? And this is also, I presume, where we get the term Christmas pageant. Yes, that is that is correct. The nativity, the birth of Christ, those were the biggest, that was that was like the one of the year. Uh-huh. If your town was ever going to do a show for you, it was going to be the birth of Jesus. Yeah. If you lived in a bigger town, you might get Easter, you might get some of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. Uh, you might get really almost anything that was in God's spell, <laughs> except it would be a four or five hour long pageant with 300 people, these gigantic moving wagons just going all in circles and sort of creating a gigantic spectacle. So more of like a three ring circus type of experience? Very, very much so. And you would have, well, like I said, a director, but back then they would call them a pageant master. Okay. And pageant masters were actually put on the city payroll. Uh-huh. And it was their job to get everything done. They had to buy the horses, the wagon, the feed. They were the ones handing out the money to pay the actors. They were the ones finding costumes. They were the ones even writing the script a lot of times. And you can go all the way back to the medieval times where you see scrolls maybe 14 feet long with just everybody who was part of that <laughs> gigantic pageant. And right up at the top, you'll, you'll see pageant master. Uh-huh. And then everybody else was below him. And at the very autumn, they'll say, and thanks to the city of so-and-so. It, it goes back quite a way. And we start to see a different style of director probably around the 19th century in the 1800s. That's mm-hmm. when you know pageants are sort of falling out. This is like when you're getting a lot more Moliere, you're getting, you know, the uh, Weimar type stuff. That's when a director's role sort of changes. You're not in charge of 300 people anymore. You're in charge of this specific show because playwrights are taking a step back at this point. Back in Shakespeare's time, if you wrote the play, you were directing it because you knew you knew what had to happen. Mm-hmm. If you didn't like the way somebody said a line that you wrote, you could say it. So there was someone who was kind of the executive in charge, but it usually was the same person who wrote it. So yes. that implies then that you didn't see productions of Shakespeare in other towns, in other cities, in other countries. They weren't really touring productions. You were you were seeing them in, uh, yeah, you'd see them in the big cities like London. Mm-hmm. If it was a big hit and the queen liked it, she'd take it with her to maybe uh, a town up north where the, she was going so she could have some entertainment. <laughs> but she had the money to do all that, and mm-hmm. you were sort of at her will. So you didn't really have all these touring companies. But these shows in these big cities, they didn't, you know, they were running for a long time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, you know, hey, come catch us three weekends. It's we're doing two shows a day. <laughs> for how for long? Months, years? Months. Very rarely uh, a year because... It's a lot to ask of, you know, a company back then, especially when winter comes and things, you know, go downhill. People aren't going to outside theater as much. Uh They're staying inside. You got the harvest season. People aren't going to be in your cities going to see the show. Uh But once you hit those good times of the year, you can run a show the whole season. Okay. And people will just keep coming back to see it. 
Well, we've we've bounced back and forth between Shakespeare and Moliere. Mm. I have this vague sense that Moliere <laughs> is mid eighteen hundreds. Is that about yeah? Right? He's uh, actually uh, late seventeen hundreds. Oh, okay, okay. And so, when, and when was Shakespeare? Shakespeare, uh, I think he died in fifteen sixteen. So like late. Okay, 1400s, so there's like a two hundred year period so, there. Yeah, and I assume theater didn't just stop then. I mean, it, it didn't there just must stop, be a, yeah. a clear path from Shakespeare to Moliere to the modern day. But why why do we not hear anything about the and we being my myself who didn't have any specific theater education, general public? Why don't we hear about any of the shows that were written in that time period? A lot of them weren't very good, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, that's that, I mean that's the easiest way to put it. I yeah. mean. They were, after Shakespeare, a lot of people were just trying to copy Shakespeare. They were just trying to use this heightened language, and it was growing stale. It's gr- okay. It was growing old. You'd seen it all before. Oh, another pirate story. So okay. I, I guess I didn't know whether Shakespeare was, quote, appreciated in his time or not. He was. Okay. Very, very much so. He was, uh, you know, a royal favorite. Queen Elizabeth I mm-hmm. loved his stuff, him and uh, Christopher Marlowe. You know, in movies and, and fiction, you always hear about this rivalry between them. Yeah. But they were very good friends. They supported each other very well. They would talk each other's shows up to others and, you know, try to help them out. So then we have a period of a couple hundred years after that where similar things are being produced. But You're getting they a don't... lot of similar stuff. What's really changing in theater at this time is... Well, let me go back and say Shakespeare's time, you had like the Globe Theater. If you've ever seen a picture of the Globe Theater, mm-hmm. it's essentially just a big open circle, a couple of pillars, and a little backstage area. Yeah. You don't have a lot of set pieces. You're not doing a lot with lighting. So during this time after Shakespeare, things are starting to get better technically in, in theater. Yeah. In the 19th century, in the 1800s, we, we started experimenting with light. We started experimenting more with sets and backgrounds and costumes really making everything just so much more heightened and alive Mm -hmm. especially for the common people the peasants they loved seeing that stuff and they were willing to spend a little bit of their hard-earned money yeah for you know a small loaf of bread and to sit there for a couple of hours and watch these dramas these histories do we have any sense of of how much money that was to them is it comparable to how much we pay to see a broadway uh, show well to see a broadway (laughs) show or a local community theater show i mean is it is it something like that or is this a bigger investment for someone it was it was if you were a working class person you could easily afford to go to the theater it wasn't something that you had to like save up for like if you wanted to go see a show on broadway yeah nowadays you plan months in advance Mm -hmm. it's it's a whole big thing Back then, it's like, okay, it's Friday night. What are we doing? Well, we're going to go see the new show. It's just sort of what you do, you know? We spend our money. Instead of eating at a tavern that night, we grab our bread, we grab our ale, and we we sit down at the old globe or something. All right. So then we get to the Moliere (laughs) era, and I recognize the name Moliere, Moliere, but I don't really fully understand the significance. Sure. This is like like when the the era of melodrama comes around. Okay. This This is where that starts. You're getting these fantastic melodramas that are just so different than what anyone's seen it's your entrances and exits have to be timed now you have specific gags you're starting to see farce Uh come out and those require that requires specific timing that requires specific things to happen in in a specific order that a director is going to know and the director is going to make sure something like that happens in your show Mm -hmm. now during this time they're adding in backgrounds, these gigantic pictures of fabulous mansions, insides of uh, palaces. Uh, they're starting to add little furniture in the background, but they're not practical. Everything on stage at this point is still just a few people standing 
relatively in a straight line, maybe a slight arc or on a diagonal, mm -hmm. they're not really doing much. It's when the melodramas come where you have specific entrances for timing, mm -hmm. farces, people closing doors just in the nick of time before they, they're supposed to not hear something. Uh -huh. That's when a director's coming in. And it's not until the 19th century when you actually start seeing real set pieces that are practical. You, chairs that have always been on stage, these actors start to use them now. They'll start leaning I, on them. I don't think the use, on them. your use of the word practical will necessarily be accessible to everyone. When you say that, what do you mean? Practical, I mean, like, uh, it's there, you could physically touch it, and you use it as intended. Instead of being decorative. Instead of just being decorative, like okay. we were seeing all the way from, you know, Shakespeare to the 19th century. Ah. It was beautiful sets. It was it was spectacle to the people seeing it. Uh -huh. Because that was, that was a look inside the life of someone higher up than them. <laughs> yeah. And they loved being able to sit there and watch that. And they would imagine these actors on stage truly being those people. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was almost like gossip of the day when you were watching these melodramas. And then they start using these set pieces as practicals. When you're sitting and having dinner, you're actually sitting down and having dinner. They're sitting down and saying their lines. And critics back then did not like that at all. They thought that theater should be elevated. It, it shouldn't look like everyday life. Mm -hmm. It should be something bigger and better and grander so you know what it is. But in the 1800s, these directors are looking around. They want to start copying life better. Mm -hmm. We as human beings, we sit down, we lean on stuff. This is where we have actors starting to turn their backs to the audience for like the first time and continue to talk. Yeah. And critics were, they hated that. <laughs> but audiences, they loved it. They're like, well, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. I do that, you know? I'm running around my kitchen yelling at my um, at my husband. And this is life. I And people started to get that. And they wanted more of it. And that really started with the melodramas in the 1900s. 1800s. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you say the directors kind of start doing this. Where do the directors come from? Who, who makes a decision that, hey, someone else gets to be in charge other than the playwright? A lot of that starts with the playwrights. They sort of pass the buck. At this point, playwrights are tired. They... Playwrights back then, they're writing so much all the time just to make a buck. Uh -huh. They're passing it on to other places. They're moving it on to theater companies. And it first started out with, you know, your main actor. He he would step forward and sort of help decide who goes around him. Okay. Because he's the lead. Uh, and eventually they they get good at it. And other companies would hire them, not to, just to be their actor, but to tell their actors what to do. Uh -huh. So they would start you know, stage blocking this way. Mm -hmm. And eventually it would move to, well, we should add in different costumes for this. Who decides that? Is it the actor? Is it the director? Is it the playwright? And that's where we get you know, into the later 18th century. I'm sorry, 19th century. I get my centuries. Mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> we get uh, the, the French word for director, regisseur, mm -hmm. which is somebody who takes control of everything. And when I say everything, I mean down down to every last penny being spent and and exactly how much your company is going to make which is closer to a combined producer and director now exactly okay. those guys they were great but they did not last long they bit off more than they could chew yeah. so that really only lasted until about uh, the early 20th century and they started to die down and we started to get production companies these theaters that specify roles especially as technology grows mm -hmm. we're not just lighting a stage with lanterns anymore, we have electric light. Mm -hmm. We can pinpoint where we want it. 
and a director isn't going to have time to sit there and play with that. He's going to hire a lighting person, mm -hmm. but that lighting person is going to listen to the director. It's tell me what you want. Tell me what your ideas are. And that starts to evolve very much so in the 20th century. And then we end up where we are now, where we have a oh, director yeah. who's really, I guess, in our... I'm, I want you to find it, but I think that it's a, sure. an artistic visionary who, yeah. who may specialize in one area or, or have a wide knowledge of them, but yeah. they are allowed to delegate as much as they want. Exactly. Uh, when I think of great directors nowadays, uh, you know, on Broadway and stuff, you think of like Bob Fosse. You think of great names like that. And these people started out doing something else. Yeah. They started out, like Bob Fosse started out in choreography. Right. And eventually just thought one day, hey, I could do this show better than that guy. <laughs> and that's what they started doing. I mean, yeah. the, the legendary Hal Prince started out as, you know, a writer, just a small time producer and realizing I know what this show needs to be. And he steps into a director's role and it, 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 it changes history. Well, it feels like we've we've arrived at the current <laughs> day really quickly and like that's surely true. we missed something there. You know, I mean. All over the world, they're doing things differently. You could also say that there's a big shift in acting and directing. Mm -hmm. When you get to the late 19th century, early 20th century with Stanislavski and Chekhov, mm -hmm. in Russia, they're, they're looking at life in a different way. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to put that on stage and make the actor a much more active part of the production. And that's where they, that's where Stanislavski came up with his rules of acting and and eventually the method came off from there. Uh, does that imply that, I guess, f coming off of that, what was the, the French term? Regi Regisseur. So from the regisseur period, where all the decisions were concentrated in the, mm -hmm. the combined director-producer role, so we see a trend from then toward the present day, focusing with the, the Russians on moving some of that artistic decision-making back out? Yeah, moving it to the actors, mm -hmm. letting them make the, uh, the decisions a lot of the power starts to go back to the playwrights as well. Chekhov worked very much with uh, Stanislavski. They worked so closely together that you almost can't do Chekhov without knowing Stanislavski's acting methods. Huh. They were they were almost written in combination. Yeah. And they took these plays and they, you know, they brought them to New York in the early 20th century and the acting was incredible. It sort of changed the western world's view of acting and all all over Europe we really started seeing a change. And with that change in acting comes a change in directing because you're no longer just telling them where to stand. You're trying to find out how they feel. Yeah. You're trying to find out what, what their motivation is. That, that's where you start to get these terms coming in, instead of say the lines, say them pretty, and you've been shot. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, add all that in. Now it's like you're, you're a single mom. You've just lost your job. You, how are you going to get dinner? Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, you have these lines. Say the lines knowing all that now. So that's because of Stanislavski, we sort of get that. And a lot of directors, they're taking what Stanislavski has and they're pushing it onto their actors. And it's making better performances and just all around better theater. Is that really the beginning of the current era, the Stanislavski era? Yes. We, uh, Stanislavski's taught in universities, high schools, everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's lampooned everywhere as well. You always see those <laughs> funny like directors, like, what is your motivation, you know? Uh -huh. That's where you're getting that, yeah. the, you know, those terms from, is mm -hmm. Stanislavski. Dig into the character, use, use who you are to influence that character. 
So that means the next person who plays that character isn't going to do it the same way. Mm-hmm. That's what truly makes uh, revolutionizes theater in the 20th century. That's what makes every show so different. Do you think there is sort of a necessity for that difference that emerged when we moved from the era where there was a single playwright and their production was the only production of that show? And so now we have a bunch of different productions of the same show. So that yes. seems like that justifies... Very much yeah. so. Uh, you know, especially when uh, America hits the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. these big cities they they hear about these, you know, through the telegraph and through the new newly found telephone and letters from friends about these shows going on, and they want to see them. So mm-hmm. how how can we see them without yes. having to travel a thousand miles to do it? That's when you start getting shows, you know, rights going out, going, okay, we're going to tour this show, and we'll get a troupe of actors who can play any of these roles, and mm-hmm. they know what to do. And that's really when, you know, theater in the 20th century is just just amazing at how fast it grew and then yeah. also how fast it sort of seemed to fall. Oh. Like, it, it didn't, it, theater in the 20th century sort of went to fade away once we started getting more color movies. Yeah. When once movies became more accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, and during the Great Depression, we had vaudeville where we didn't really need directors. Mm-hmm. You just needed to have an act. Can you sing? Can you juggle? Can you tell good jokes? You could pay a couple of pennies to see something like that. And that's just essentially a variety show, right? The yeah. tours, yeah. A vaudeville, it's, you know, that's, that's the guy coming out with the hook when the audience starts throwing vegetables, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? That, you know, that's, that, that's vaudeville, and that stuff very much happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, with the advent of electricity, you get stuff like Ziegfeld's Follies, which were huge in New York. Mm-hmm. He'd, he'd just line up about, like, a hundred of the most beautiful showgirls you've ever seen, and then he'll throw them in a kick line, lace them with gold sequins, and you'd watch that for two hours, and your jaw would drop. <laughs> uh, and eventually, we moved away from these sort of these sort of musical comedies, where you'd have these dance numbers, and somebody would come out and say some jokes, into what was eventually musical theater, mm-hmm. where a linear story was being told. And one of the first ones of that is Showboat, adapted from a, a book that Oscar Hammerstein just loved. Well, I was about to ask how these two things interrelated, those being the world of plays and the world of vaudeville, and it sounds like they converged into the the, the art form is your answer there, but I guess where they, they seem like they were occupying the same physical spaces and the same role before that. Yes, very much so. As a matter of fact, what is considered to be the quote-unquote first ever musical was called The Black Crook in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that came about was because the acting company and the ballet company, they double booked. So they were supposed to be there at the same time. So they said, why don't we just do it together? <laughs> it was a five and a half hour show, <laughs> but it got rave reviews. People loved the story and the ballet that happened in between it. And the ballet portion of musical theater continued up until like the 1950s and 60s. There's a ballet in Oklahoma. There's a ballet yeah. in, in Showboat and all these classic musicals that take up 20 minutes of your time. So if I, if I didn't have you explaining that to me, it, yeah. and I guess in the past I've, I've wondered how come musicals grew independently while we have opera as a tradition. It seems like opera should have, like there should be a, a, a clear line where opera evolved into musicals, but it didn't happen. We still have opera companies and most of them are primarily performing they operas written from the 1800s, the big romantic era. They're That's still, still doing them. Right. And so there, there are new operas being written, and most opera companies do produce modern works, but that's not, that's not the core of what they do. And it's I, at not risk so of overstating a lot of people, people's preferences, <laughs> that's not what 
the the core audience wants. They want to see those. And, and I don't really understand why that medium, to some degree, stagnated, got stuck at a certain point or anchored at a certain point, whereas musical theater emerged and just continues to be evolving. Just be like, yeah, just be this monster of, you know, a juggernaut of, of pop culture. And hypothetically, they're so similar, though. And some musicals are through composed, you know, they're not song dialogue song they're they're continual music and that seems to be the main differentiation between opera but there yeah <laughs> sure you know i like to think that opera was for the upper echelons of society you mm-hmm. know the people who who wore tuxedos and and top hats and they would go to see an opera and really musical theater sort of started to really come in the form of musical comedy when the poorer classes couldn't really you know, they can't afford to go see a three-hour opera or, mm-hmm. you know, like a pagliaccio. Mm-hmm. They're not seeing that because they don't have the money. So they're getting these younger people, these people who don't have as great a musical experience. Yeah, they can write a couple of ditties, but they can't fill up an entire opera. Yeah. And that's where we start to get this musical comedy. And really, it was for the lower classes. Okay. And it just it just took off. And then the upper classes started to take notice and when you have two classes paying the same amount of money for it, one's bound to to be better than the other. Well, do better than the <laughs> yeah. other. But yeah, I mean, you still. I mean, there's still a, a want of opera today. People mm-hmm. still go see it. I mean, oh, the, sure. Met, the Met will sell out. Almost every major city you go to has uh, has a, a a big, very well funded opera company. Mm-hmm. So it's not like uh, it's not like we don't want to go see it. It's just not really where pop culture's you know going. We want to right. We want we want to get more character. And there. Broadway seems attached to pop culture. You see things Very like much. Book of Mormon, which is by uh, Parker and Stone, the creators of yes, South Park. South Park. And you, you see these connections to just big mainstream pop culture things. Absolutely, uh, kinky boots with yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas opera seems to be still rooted in the academic world. It is very much so. Mostly because I mean nowadays the operas that I've seen. I've always had a an English teleprompter up there, mm-hmm. so I know what's going on. Back then, people knew multiple languages mm-hmm. relatively easy, mostly because they were also immigrants. They spoke the language fluently, and they had to. They moved to America. They moved to another country. They learned all this stuff, so it was, it was a little easily accessible to them. But as generations grew up, especially in the United States, learning primarily English, mm-hmm. going to these operas that didn't have teleprompters like we have today, they didn't yeah. know what was going on. And and musical comedy sort of filled it in. They knew where to laugh. This is totally, yeah. I mean, it's not totally off, off topic. It's just not the primary topic. Mm-hmm. But do you have a sense for why Broadway is the big live theater moneymaker in the modern world? And it's so rare to see a straight play on Broadway. And it happens. It does. Um, the, the broad, I think the Broadway Across America is the, the company that tours them here yeah. in the central texas area and we did have play that goes wrong come through on their their season so i think a lot of years they'll have one straight play most of its most of its musicals why is that people just like a good musical i like (laughs) like i know i know i'm personally i I love to sit down and watch a musical i feel as though i'm personally getting more bang for my buck if i'm going to shell out 150 dollars for a ticket yeah well you better sing and dance for me (laughs) 
it's uh, it's just incongruous with what we do as community theater people. Yes, um, we, because we do far more plays yes. than we do musicals because of that cost. Yeah, that and that's come up before on other episodes that the, yeah. the licensing fees for musicals are astronomical. Absolutely, they require so much more staffing to do a musical, mm-hmm. but I mean, with a greater risk is a greater reward. Mm-hmm. At the Gaslight Baker, some of the best shows have been the musicals. Mm-hmm. Godspell was huge. Annie Get when you say best, was, we're talking financially. Financial, <laughs> financially viable, uh, yeah. These are bringing in the money. You see yeah. higher attendance at musicals because yeah. people feel like they're really getting a bang for their buck. Uh, you know, at the Gaslight Baker, the musicals, they clean up. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll make your budget... In, in three weekends, no problem. But the straight plays, that's where that's where you really have to count your attendance. You really got to make sure yeah. your your budgets are good. Musicals, it's a big risk, but high reward. Yeah, and that big risk really is significant. That's not just lip service because there are so many. It took a long time to get the Gaslight Baker to give it a real shot Yeah, because it is such a risk. And there are a lot of community theaters that I have worked with who just were completely <laughs> unwilling to try musicals because it, it, it's it's enormous. It, the licenses are what eight times, ten times the cost. At least, of a... uh, you know, to do a, a straight play, you're looking at maybe one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars a performance. Mm-hmm. For a musical, you're looking at maybe about a thousand dollars a performance. Yeah. So it's a big gap, mm-hmm. and not only are you paying for the scripts, which you actually have to give back. Yeah. You're you're also working for on music. Mm-hmm. So if you have a live orchestra. I know musicians, they don't like to work for free. No, indeed. <laughs> no, indeed. So you're either going to pay an orchestra or you're going to pay for the recorded orchestrations of it. And that's that's where a bulk of your your budget's going to go. Yeah. It just requires more people. I know you're co-music directing nine to five. Yep. That's more staff that a regular play doesn't have. Oh, sure. I just directed the 39 Steps and I didn't need a musical director. No. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah, that's more staff. That's more people that you have to employ. So it all goes back to that greater risk, greater reward. All right, well, since we're uh, topic hopping, yeah, let's grab go. something here. Sure. Oh, Song so, of Spider-Man. Also, also uh, another thing that came up after our first re- recording session was this book recommendation. I'm yes. holding here Song of Spider-Man by Glenn Berger, which is... It's a tell-all. It really is <laughs> about it's... the debacle that was trying to put on Spider-Man: Turn S- on the Spider-Man, Dark. Spider-Man: Turn off the Dark. Turn it's, off the dark. Yeah, it's a real uh, how the sausage is made kind of book, and it has been very entertaining. I'm very slow to get through books, partly because I keep starting other books. So <laughs> I've I've gotten through some other fiction while I'm reading this at the same time. But I'm two thirds of the way through this, and the the thing I want to ask you about, mm-hmm. and it actually is pretty tangential to the main thread. And that's that Glenn Berger, the, the playwright, uh, yeah. who is also the author of this book, yeah. describes casting in a way that I found upsetting, I suppose, sure. disorienting, because he's describing his own thoughts about the actors in mind. And I think he's also trying to describe Julie Taymor's thoughts about this process, and yeah. he's describing these actors as sort of fixed quantities and certain individuals have it this yeah. big nebulous it and that's that star quality yeah. yes and that's really off-putting to me and i realize our positions are so wildly different i'm an amateur actor doing this out of the love of the thing mm-hmm. and and he's talking about the most expensive production i believe ever that's ever been right. done but but it's so 
integral to the way actors talk amongst themselves about acting that we are not fixed quantities. We're constantly honing a craft. Yeah. We are getting better. We view there as being space for us to make progress. Yeah, we're, and we're, we're growing with the art. Uh, yeah. You know, when these big Broadway producers, these, uh, these people with money, they come in, they could care less about yeah. that. They really could. And I've been on the other end of that. Uh, you know, I've done auditions in Philadelphia and New York in front of people like this. And they would stop me in the middle of monologue going, thanks. We saw what we need to see. Yeah. And, you know, you just never hear back because they're looking for that that one thing. It could be a look. It could just be the way you hit a hit a note in a song. Yeah. They're looking for that, that they that they can see in a commercial. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're looking for. And it's a shame that, the, you know, actors are treated like cattle that way. Yeah. But do you find when you are in director mode, do mm -hmm. you have a director mode? Is there a kind of mental shift you have to go into that's closer to that? Hmm, that's a good question. Do I sort of shift? Uh, I probably read the script differently, mm -hmm. for sure, And when I go into directing. I just did uh, The 39 Steps. Uh, the first time I did it, I was both an actor and a director, and I directed it. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had our director drop out. <laughs> and, uh, I Where was, was this? Oh, Tibola, Louisiana. Okay. <laughs> I was, like, fresh out of college sort of thing. I, you know, I... I I directed a couple things before that, a couple of farces. The director dropped out and we needed somebody and nobody was coming forward. So I'm like, you know what? I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to be the big man on campus. And it was the most challenging thing I have ever done to act and direct in that specific play. I imagine. And when I got the second time to do it the, uh, here at the Gaslight Baker, a chance to, I used it as a chance to fix my mistakes mm -hmm. that I that I made as a young director. Yeah. So I definitely looked at the script differently. Mm -hmm. uh, I would definitely say I, I switched into a different mode. Mm -hmm. I was able to see the the bigger picture versus the the small world that I was creating as an actor. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that I definitely made a big switch, and I think it makes a big difference. I guess actually, what I'm thinking of here and I'm just realizing mm -hmm. this as I say it is that a lot of shows I have been in I've been fortunate enough that the director did essentially a lot of teaching you know they mm -hmm. they did a lot of character work and they seem to view myself and the other actors as malleable and people who could be elevated sure that's that's a that's a really big thing in community theater I've noticed mm -hmm. uh Mostly because you don't have that, you know, a wide pool of talent. You're mm -hmm. not getting, uh, we're not getting NYU students in Juilliard, yeah. students and people who studied uh, drama at Oxford here in central Louisiana. So we're, it all goes back to us, you know, directors teaching a lot of the basics, going back to Stanislavski. When you're coming up to that, uh, what is my motivation sort mm -hmm. of sort of stuff, trying to get through an actor why they're saying that line and why they have to say it this way. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that's, you know, that directing is really more or less teaching. Mm -hmm. For a while, I thought, wow, these directors who go through a lot of that character development work are really just much better directors. But I've since considered that it's likely that me expecting that is kind of expecting a free education. Sure. I, yeah. I, yeah, I can see where that comes from. Uh, personally, when I direct, I don't like to tell an actor how to say the line. Mm -hmm. I want to tell them where they're standing. Yeah. When, I'm, when I direct, I consider myself the first audience member. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you what's working and what's not working in this mm -hmm. scene. Yeah, I know the script. Uh, 
let's let's look at it. This isn't funny, guys. Why isn't it funny? It's it's supposed to be very funny. You just got hit in the face with a pot. Why aren't we laughing? <laughs> yeah. Let's take it back. Let's find out what's wrong with this. Got it. So you missed a line, and that's why. You know, something like <laughs> that. I like to give my actors very minimal stuff to do, mm-hmm. and then I, I want them to discover the jokes on their own. I want them to, to discover the drama on their own. Why? Why? Why is that hitting them so hard? And I, I, I like to give them hints along the way. You know, like, hey, why? Why are you saying this line this way? I, I know one specific one in the 39 steps. It's in act two. Pamela has confronted Richard Hannay and he still wants to clear his name, but she just wants to be in love with him. And she says, why does it matter? And they're about to kiss. And then all of a sudden he just breaks it and goes, why does it matter? Why does it matter? And your first couple of rehearsals, my actor wasn't getting it. Mm-hmm. Like, why do, like, why are you breaking it off here? And why does it matter? Why don't you want to kiss this girl right now? What what in your life, what everything that's happened, it makes this line break off kissing this beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. And so we had to, you know, we had to do a little deep dive into it. Like, okay, let's let's look at what you said in the past. In your very first scene, you were contemplating suicide, whether or not life was worth going on. Now you're on this marvelous adventure. Why does it matter? Really, she's saying, why do you matter? Mm. And that sort of needs to hit him, and that's why he doesn't want to kiss her. Why does it matter? My life finally matters. Uh, Once he even had that realization, he played with it more, and it was a great line, great delivery, and he got a lot of laughs. You know, something so serious for him was very funny for us. Well, let's talk a little more about the 39 steps. My wife tells me we saw this years ago. Mm -hmm. It was hilarious. You loved it. I have no memory of that. That's (laughs) normal for my memory. So I I was at your production this past weekend, which is when I uh, talked you into doing this recording. Um, And I was cracking up the whole time. But I understand the source material, the Hitchcock movie, which which I have not seen. I'm fairly certain I haven't seen. I don't think I've forgotten that Do yourself a favor, don't watch it. (laughs) But how how did a serious, a presumably really serious, yeah, it's a Hitchcock it, film turned into this really just farcical. Would that be the word for it? Definitely farcical. Yeah. Very, very much like Monty Python. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of gags here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, jokes going a mile. Not a minute. here and there. Everywhere, throughout, <laughs> constant. <laughs> it's true. hilarious, and it's just nonstop. Yeah, when you look back at the source material, first started out as a you know a thrilling book by John Buchanan. Okay, and and it was it was it was huge. It was one of Alfred Hitchcock's first movies. He did this in oh, the, okay. he did this in the early 1940s or late 1930s. So this was like his first foray into film, ah. and it's sort of bad. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of forced the thrillingness of it. They sort of forced the romance into it. The book is much better. Mm-hmm. And what this new playwright did, Patrick Barlow, gosh, probably almost 20 years ago now, took mm-hmm. this play, well, took this movie and the book, and he sort of combined them and said, they're not really what they should be. Like, they're, <laughs> they're, they're not like this thrilling spy story. This isn't James Bond. Uh-huh. This is like, uh, it's like Eric Idle or Mr. Bean fumbling in the dark uh-huh. uh, in you know, very uh, even Peter Sellers Pink Panther esque with with the comedy. But but the novel did take itself seriously in the same the way. The novel took did. itself seriously. Okay, there okay. was almost nothing funny about the book or the movie. <laughs> and when you sort of flip it on its side and say let's tr- let's try to something else, uh-huh. and they go you know, through a lot of experimentation in London and, and and overseas, they came up with this incredibly funny show that tells the story better than than the original author and what Hitchcock tried to do. I mean, it worked out so well. Four actors, two clowns, yeah. someone to play the woman, and someone to play the lead character, Richard Hennay. And 
with all the scene changes, they made what could have been a very thrilling and intense train scene where they were there hopping between car and car Mm -hmm. over the top and they turned it into something so incredibly funny (laughs) so you don't have to worry about keeping the suspense up as long as they're up there flapping their arms and the lights are going you're going to keep laughing and it it was just a blast to do yeah and yeah great great talented cast can't give them enough credit yeah that conceit of having actors swap between roles again and again it's also the same premise as the the tuna series greater tuna yeah. tuna christmas and everything is that a is there a term for that in general you know i don't really know um seems to come up occasionally it really does like a lot a lot of production companies will do that uh, i know it's done in shakespeare quite a few times you know mm-hmm. where actors are playing different roles but not necessarily in a comedic this is how it's supposed to yeah. be way yeah, yeah. uh Oh, it's very much the bit in 39 Steps because there is a part where they're doing this change on stage. (laughs) Yes, they're they're changing between an old man, an old woman, and uh, two gangsters relatively fast in a hotel lobby. (laughs) Yes, yes. And they're having conversations with each other. And it's it's fast-paced. If if you blink, you'll miss it. Yeah. But I think a lot of that, the confidence to sort of change characters mid- you know, mid scene, mid show, mm-hmm. could probably even just go back to Monty Python. They, <laughs> they they really invented a lot of that type of comedy. Yeah, they they sort of took what was being done as sketch comedy and and turned it into something much more mainstream. And you know, anybody can be anybody, and you don't fully have to believe it. Like, do any of us really believe Eric Idle was an old lady trying to sell spam? <laughs> I'm always happier when Monty Python's Flying Circus is available for free on one of the streaming services. Oh, well, I mean, not free. You have a subscription. But sure, sure. Sometimes they take it off Netflix, and those are dark times. I don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> it, it, it's like the McRib. They take it away just to get yeah. it back later. Yeah, yeah, that's probably <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else you wanted to discuss today? Oh, boy. I don't know. Unfortunately, you you're leaving the area, so you don't really that's have a, right, a, that... an upcoming show to play. That's right. I sort of wish I did. I don't know. Uh, I'm glad you're enjoying Song of Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. It does get a little cringy towards the end, especially when, uh, spoiler alert, Glenn uh, and uh, Julie Taymor, Julie Taymor yeah. sort of have this big falling out. Yeah. yeah. Coming up on that right now, I can tell. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is. It's real bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've watched some YouTube videos of Glenn talking about this book, and he said he had to write this book to to make ends meet and like as soon as julie tamor heard he was writing a book about this she sicked every lawyer she could get on him to stop him from doing it he he had to shop publishers again it was bad oh wow you can see why published yeah (laughs) you can see why yeah all right well hopefully by the time you have something else that you want to talk about on the podcast i'll be set up for remote recording and not have to get people the same I assume you're going to find a theater to work with where you're going oh, next. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Believe it or not, your what podcast, two two podcasts ago with Michael Meigs, uh-huh. uh, I just got to tell you, I love that so much. <laughs> I want to write reviews. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Like, it's it sort of convinced me. I had the hardest time trying to get anybody to come out and review the 39 steps. So yeah. hard that I couldn't get anybody. Yeah. I reached out to Broadway World. I reached out to Michael. I reached out to... You know, Texas State College kids. I'm like, hey, I'll give you free tickets. Mm-hmm. Just come out and write a review. I'll proof it if you want. Yeah. Anything. I couldn't get anybody to come out and review our show. And after listening to Michael and realizing what like a sort of a shortage we have. Yeah. What 
I, you don't realize how important a theater review is until you don't have one. Right. And it's it's sort of invigorated me to to want to review theater. That's excellent. I know. I'm really excited. That's what you should be doing. <laughs> but you're going to upstate New York, is that right? That's right. I, uh, my wife and I were moving to Rochester, New York, uh, later this spring, early this summer, mm-hmm. to uh, start anew. All right. We, we love traveling around. We love mo- moving and living in different places. And uh, I'm really excited about the theater scene up there. There's like six or seven community excellent. theaters. Excellent. So you've scattered out in advance. I have. <laughs> I've uh, practically sent them all a resume. Going, hey, <laughs> how can I help? I'm sure you'll manage to stay busy then. Thanks. I hope so. All right. Well, thanks. And I hope to have you back again in the future. Yeah, thanks. I'd love to come back. All right. This has been the Community of Theater podcast. A lot has happened in the past week and a half since this recording. Not only did we get 9 to 5 cast, but Doug has had to postpone his move to Rochester. New York's loss is our gain, though, in that Doug was able to come audition for us, and he will be Franklin Hart in our production. In podcast show news, if you're listening to this when it's published, you may notice that it's coming out a day late. When I started publishing the show, I had a healthy buffer. I was recording about a month before each episode was released, got it edited and uploaded to the host at least a week prior to when it aired, but I have completely used up that buffer. I I still think that two episodes a month is largely a good sustainable pace, but I'm going to need to occasionally take a short break to rebuild the buffer. So don't expect an April 1st episode, but should be back in your feed on April 15th. As always, I would deeply appreciate ratings or reviews in whatever app you're using to listen to the show. And I would love to hear any feedback you have. You can reach me at communityoftheater at gmail.com or message the show's page on Facebook. Thanks for listening. And if you're currently in a production, break a leg.